0: Kia ora ko Gwen Compton toko and welcome to Local Aotearoa, a podcast dedicated solely to what's happening in New Zealand's world of local government. Welcome back to episode two of Local Aotearoa. Before we get underway today, I just wanted to quickly thank everyone for your great feedback. I fully appreciate that the world of local government is a pretty niche topic, and that so many of you listened to and enjoyed the first episode has been a real buzz. I'd also like to quickly make one correction to last week's episode, and thank you to listener Oscar for picking up on this, and that's where instead of saying FPP for first past the post, I said FTP. Like I said back then, uh, there will be hiccups and some teething issues, not least when I don't stick to the script I prepare. So last week I outlined the three, uh, the big three reforms facing local government in New Zealand. Three Waters, the Resource Management Act and the Local Government Review. While the last two of those still have a long way to go, the Three Waters reform is starting to get to the business end of things. While I've made a point of talking publicly about the Three Waters reform for quite a while now, It's only been in the last couple of months that the wider public have started to really pay attention to what's being proposed. In terms of what I'll cover today, first I'll go over what the three waters that are proposed to be reformed actually are, what council's role is in them, uh, what led to the reforms being proposed, what's actually being proposed, uh, and I'll go through some of the arguments for the reforms and against them. And I'll look at how this is playing out uh, politically as well, because there's obviously a big political element to this too. So, what are the three waters? Put simply, three waters refers to drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater. So, what comes out of your tap, what goes down the toilet, and what goes down the stormwater drains in your street. Local government's involvement stems generally from three pieces of legislation, especially with regards to drinking water, and they are the Resource Management Act, the Local Government Act and the Health Act. As of September 2021, local authorities are responsible for the provision of all three of these services and the associated infrastructure to support them. Regional authorities get involved in terms of being the environmental regulator, but though there is an exception with Greater Wellington Regional Council also being involved in the bulk supply of water for the Wellington water networks. These water services are a big part of what local government does. When you think about it, drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater are all fairly integral parts of enabling land use, whether it's for housing or commercial uh, purposes. Now, I've heard various figures bandied about about how much of a share of local government's expenditure the Three Waters takes up. and local government New Zealand has on their website figures from the 2010-11 financial year that suggest it was around about 16% a decade ago. But there's plenty of variability between councils, and that's not just because of their differing sizes and geographies, but also because we all account for expenditure and allocate debt in slightly different ways too. Depending on who you ask, for some councils, especially those in less densely populated areas, the three waters can approach half of what they do. For others it might be around a quarter. So there's no one-size-fits-all approach to this and that's been a big challenge for central government in terms of trying to get to grips with the issue. The other challenge is that outside of urban areas, water infrastructure isn't typically connected together in the same way that, say, electricity, communications or transportation networks usually are. For example, while well, Upper Hutt, Lower Hutt, Porirua and Wellington are all covered by the Wellington Water Network, and they all source their drinking water from the Hutt Valley, though there are different, several different wastewater treatment plants closer to those main urban centres. Come up the road uh, here to Carperty, and Paikakariki has its own drinking water scheme, and they're on septic tanks. Paraparaumu and Waikanae and Raumati, they're all connected together. And we've got shared uh, drinking water, Um, we've got the same wastewater treatment plant here as well. But then you go further up the road to Ōtaki, and they're on separate infrastructure to the rest of us. A similar situation plays out over in the Waarepa too, where geographically separate towns have their own individual drinking water treatment plants and wastewater management plants. And it makes sense too, because water and wastewater aren't necessarily easy to pump over long distances. When you factor in stormwater, which again is dealt separately to wastewater and drinking water, Unless you're in Wellington, where occasionally pipes break and they all mix together on Guzzney Street and flow their way down into the harbour. Sorry, sorry, I'm going to try not to make too many jokes at Wellington's expense. Um, But you you can start to see how this does make up a big part of what local government does and how well it gets done has a direct impact on the well-being of the communities we serve. Now, with that bit of background out of the way, I'm not going to leap straight into what's being proposed just yet because it's useful to understand how exactly we got to this point where wholesale change is being proposed. While I know various people in the sector like to cite uh, letters to ministers about the struggles of funding water infrastructure dating back some two decades, I sort of discount that because we've been complaining about funding in local government for everything since the time of the provinces. It's not new that local government struggles to adequately finance things. The real catalyst for the current Three Waters reforms is what happened in Havelock North in the Hawke's Bay in August 2016, when a waterborne outbreak of gastroenteritis made at least a third of the town's uh, 14,000 residents ill, if not more, with Campylobacteriosis Well, I hope I've pronounced that uh, correctly. 45 people were subsequently hospitalised, and there's a number of people who are still suffering health complications as a result of that outbreak. And the outbreak is also believed to have contributed to four deaths as well. A public inquiry was set up to establish what happened and to recommend steps in order to prevent it from happening again. The inquiry identified that sheep were the likely source of the Campylobacter, with heavy rain causing contaminated water to flow into a pond that was close to the town's water bore. The contaminated water then seeped its way into the aquifer, which the bore then pumped into the town's supply. One of the most shocking findings of that review, that 20% of the country is drinking from water supplies that can't be demonstrated to be safe that's a pretty scary number and it's one that I suspect most people would agree isn't good enough. The review was also fairly scathing of the funding and operation and accountability in terms of how councils manage drinking water supplies. As a result of that inquiry, a number of changes have been or are being proposed to be made. One of the big initial ones was the um, establishment of Tomato Arawai, which is in existence now, and that's a standalone drinking water regulator to um, enforce new drinking water standards that have been developed. Importantly, these standards will be required for nearly all drinking water sources, including private schemes, which is a big change to how things currently operate. The other big thing to come about in response to that inquiry are uh, the proposals that we have today in terms of the Three Waters reform. But that reform isn't just because of what happened in Havelock North. By this stage, I'm fairly certain that most of the country is familiar with the state of pipes underneath the streets of Wellington and Porirua and the Hutt Valley. In 2020, Porirua was estimated to be up for $2 billion in order to upgrade their pipes, Hutt City Council $1.3 billion and Wellington City was looking at upwards of $5 for its upgrades and to meet future growth. While there's general agreement that those eye-watering figures are the result of decades of underinvestment in water infrastructure, there's been plenty of heated debate about who's responsible for that. On the one hand, politicians over the years have said that they were never made aware of how bad the situation was, and had they been, they would have stomached high rate rises to pay for the necessary upgrades. On the other hand, those responsible for advising politicians have said that they did tell them how bad the situation was, but investments were continu- continually deferred and depreciation not budgeted for in order to keep rates increases down. Without trying to rule on one side or the other of the, that debate, I would make the point that unfortunately. The funding of local government largely through property rates, which are essentially property taxes, that need to be set each year is what created the entire dynamic in the first place. Central government, whose big revenue streams say of goods and services tax and income tax are largely inflation proof in that the more prices of goods and services increase and as people get wage increases and move up through the income tax bands, central government gets the same if not more revenue. Local government, on the other hand, has to either effectively increase those property taxes each year, even just to meet inflation, let alone funding things like growth, or they have to delay and defer things. Now, in theory, the need to go out and strike rates each year is intended to be a mechanism to induce local government politicians into fiscal prudence. The political reality is that tax increases are seldom popular, and so political pressures build, and something has to give. Politicians know this, those advising politicians know this, and so it influences how the entire machinery of local government works. Now, in fairness, local government doesn't do itself any favours when it comes to debate about setting rates, when we do sometimes fund some very dubious pet projects, instead of things like core infrastructure. Though that's a a problem that's universal to all politicians it's not just local government sorry i should say it's um it's just local government that gets to go through the process of setting you know your taxes every year like clockwork so with all that in mind it's really important to know that the one thing that we all agree on is that something needs to change however what that change should be is where the disagreements start to become very big. Now, because of time limits, I'm not going to go into forensic detail of what central government is proposing. If you'd like that, I'd encourage you to search for the Three Waters Reform and visit the Department of Internal Affairs website, which has hundreds of pages of information to drown yourself in. But what is proposed, at a high level, is to effectively amalgamate all the three waters infrastructure and services into four large multi regional entities with the suitably inspiring working titles of Entities A, B, C, and D. Entity A would cover Auckland and Northland. Entity B would cover Waikato, Bay of Plenty, Taranaki, and the upper parts of our Manawatu Wanganui. Entity C would run from Nelson Tasman uh, across to Marlborough and the South Island through to uh, go across Cook Strait through Wellington, um, up through the Wairapa, up through the Kapiti Coast to the Manawatu, across the Rohini Ranges uh, and all the way up uh, Hawke's Bay through Gisborne all the way up to the East Cape. Entity D would uh, take in the rest of the South Island though there's some debate about some of those um, those boundaries especially around uh, say the Rocky Gulf, around uh, Taranaki um, and also whether Entity D should take in the whole South Island or not. Now technically each of these entities would still be owned by the local authorities within their boundaries. Though this ownership wouldn't have an associated shareholding attached to it nor would it see any dividends paid. Likewise, local authorities wouldn't directly appoint the boards overseeing these entities, like say they would with a council-controlled organisation. The governance structure for the new entities would see a regional representative group made up of a representative sample of local authorities in their entities' boundaries, though crucially not all local authorities, along with an equal number of representatives from mana whenua. The regional representative group would perform an oversight role, as well as being responsible for appointing an independent selection panel, which would then go out and appoint a competency-based uh, board of directors to govern the entity. The representative group would also issue a statement of strategic and performance ex- expectations to inform the direction for the entity to take. Mana Whenua would also issue a Temana O 2 Wai statement, And just like the statement of strategic and performance expectations, the entity's governing board would need to respond to both of these and outline how it plans to meet those expectations. The entities will be overseen as well by uh, Tomata Arawai, which is that new drinking water regulatory body, Uh, regional councils who have responsibility currently for consenting and monitoring the use of natural resources and the associated discharges from any um, activity, There'll be an economic regulator, which would check that what's being charged is appropriate. And there's going to be a consumer body as well that would, as the name suggests, directly advocate for consumers and check things like service levels and the like. The entities would also be required to consult with the communities and iwi they serve on decisions they're making. And my understanding is that would be a similar way to how local authorities do currently. Confused yet? Confused yet? Don't worry, a lot of people are. The argument behind this complex governance and ownership arrangement is that it's needed to ensure what's called balance sheet separation. That is, the balance sheets of the entities don't get rolled back up in the balance sheets of the local authorities that technically own them. That in turn frees up room to borrow for both the local authorities and the new water entities. In fact, the new water entities could well borrow at a debt-to-revenue ratio of 2, 3 or even 4 times as much as local government currently can. There's a bit of debate over whether they will be able to borrow more cheaply than local government can, though as it looks like they will be effectively underwritten by central government, then they'll likely be able to enjoy the same credit rating and borrowing rates that central government does, which is slightly below what local government can achieve currently. These new entities would also have what central government believes would be protections against privatisation. The main ones are that any proposal for privatisation would need to be endorsed by at least a 75% majority of the regional representative group, including mana Then it would need to be put to a referendum within the entity's boundaries. And then, assuming it got through those first two significant hurdles, any privatisation proposal would need to go through a legislative and select committee process too. Now it's worth noting that all of these protections could simply be legislated away by a future government. So the protection isn't so much the measures themselves, but the political heat a future government would be prepared to handle in order to override them. Especially the involvement of Manu whenua, who I suspect wouldn't be that keen on giving away influence over the three waters, having only just regained it. There's a handful of other protections, but they're fairly minor in comparison to these, which are all about upping the political ante should a future government decide to try their luck. Central government argues that entities of this scale, so the four big entities, are needed in order to achieve economies of scale through operational efficiencies and the ability to borrow more at better rates. They also argue that entities of this scale are the only way to enable fair cross-subsidisation to ensure that people across the country pay more or less the same amount for their three waters, regardless of whether they're in a major city or a provincial town. Most importantly, central government believes that this is the best way to ensure equity of access to safe drinking water. To support their case, central government has put together a bunch of local dashboards, comparing what they believe water costs would be on average per household without any reforms, versus what they would be with their reforms. As you might imagine, they believe that without the reforms, things would be a lot more expensive, though how much depends on your council's current situation and what entity you're going to end up in. There's some pretty big ranges out there, so I won't go into all of them, but if you are interested, you can find all of these dashboards on the Department of Internal Affairs website. As an example, though, for the Kapiti Coast, central government claims that by 2051, with the reforms, the average cost per household would be $1,260 per year, and that without the reforms, it would be $2,630 per year. For reference, our long term plan for Kapari Coast District Council estimates that the cost would be around $884 per household. So it's fair to say there's a lot of debate around how accurate any of those numbers are, both local governments and central governments, especially when you're projecting out 30 years into the future. The big scary number, as if those weren't scary enough, but the big scary number in all of this is the estimate that over the next three decades anywhere between $120 to $185 billion worth of investment is needed to not just maintain, but also to upgrade and grow r 3 waters infrastructure to meet things like increasing demand and climate change. It's an eye-watering figure, and it is likely beyond the current capabilities of most Councils balance sheets, given, and you guessed it, the current funding arrangements for local government, but more on that again later. The government has engaged numerous consultants to advise and review their proposals, with the most important of these being the Water Industry Commission for Scotland, which you'll often hear being referred to as WICs. And it's obvious from going through the reforms that the Scottish experience of water reform has heavily influenced what's proposed today. To sweeten the deal, in July 2021, central government announced a $2.5 billion package. $2 billion of this is to go directly to local authorities, so it's important to note that $1 billion of this would be money that the new water entities would be borrowing from their shiny new balance sheets, meaning that $1 billion will come out of your water bills down the line anyway. So, there's a bit of uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul going on, though the reality is that all the money comes out of your pocket, whether it's out of taxes or water bills at some point anyway. Um, and that other 500 million was to help local authorities deal with any other associated costs of the transition to the new entities should these reforms happen. It's also worth noting that central government has assessed a certain amount of Three Waters infrastructure related debt from each council that would be transferred across to the new entities, and this is in part where this big sweetener kicks in, in that it's designed to ensure that councils that either had no or very little debt weren't any worse off than councils who would get um, effectively debt relief from this. But unsurprisingly, there's debate about how much debt central government has assessed would be transferred over from each local authority, and whether the no worse off funding actually does cover everything um, In terms of the stranded overhead so that staff and other bits and bobs that might end up left on a local council's uh, books rather than going over to the new entities there's also issues like uh, breaking interest rate swaps that still need to be worked through too when it comes to transferring that debt and that's because you can uh, imagine that local authorities will all be very keen to hand over their most expensive interest rates to the new entities because that obviously reduces the the cost for council, um, but that might come with significant costs for exiting those swaps as well, depending on when they were taken. I'd also point out that this funding, that two point five billion dollars of funding, comes on top of around seven hundred million um, that was made available in twenty twenty, and around about six hundred million of that actually went to local authorities, and that was to take part in the first phase of these reforms, and that was essentially an information gathering exercise to help uh, inform the development of what we have today. So that's what's being proposed more or less. Um, and don't worry if your head is spinning, uh, spinning because that is a hell of a lot of um, stuff to work your way through. And obviously you can picture your councillors at the moment around the country are all trying to process this as well, even though we've been on this journey a little longer than the public has. So what's been the reaction and what's the you? Well. As the old joke about a lawyer's answers to every question goes, it depends. If you're a council that's staring down the barrel of billions billions of dollars of pipe upgrades due to decades of underinvestment, you might just be glad to hand over that headache to someone else to manage. On the flip side, if you're a council that's generally done a pretty good job of managing your water infrastructure over the years you're probably less keen to hand over all your good work to someone else without any guarantees or direct accountability on how your community will be served by these new large entities. Though sitting under all of this is the reality that there will be a massive increase in investment needed to meet new drinking water, wastewater discharge, stormwater management regulations and climate change in years to come councils generally accept that um, we can't necessarily fund all of that under our current financing arrangements. Well, we could, but uh, rates bills would absolutely skyrocket, and as I sort of pointed out earlier, that's been the pressure that's actually led us into this situation in terms of um, the, the funding of infrastructure around the country today. Of course, all of this is actually sort of dependent on whether you agree with the assumptions underpinning central government's proposals. A number of councils, including Kapiti Coast District Council, have commissioned infrastructure firm Castalia to review the Three Waters reform proposal. And Castalia raises a number of challenges to the model and the assumptions used to justify it. If you want to, to get an um, idea of these in detail, your local council might have a copy on their website, and I know that we have one that's an appendix to this week's council papers here in Kapiti. But to give you what's, uh, give you a taste of what's in their report, Castalia challenges things like um, WIC's uh, comparisons with Scotland, in that uh, depending on the measure you use, Something like 70 to 80% of Scotland's population lives in what's called the Central Belt, and that's a corridor that's smaller than the distance from Auckland to Hamilton. And so they're talking about the uh, the area from Glasgow to Edinburgh and the surrounding area, immediately surrounding areas of there. If you use that same comparison, Auckland and Waikato between them only account for about 41% of New Zealand's population. So whereas Scotland's population connected to water services are within a fairly small geographical area, New Zealand's population centres are much more spread out, and it's this challenge of population density and geography that hurts some of the argument around the opportunities for economies of scale. The other thing Castalia points out, Is that the new water entities have undertaken to keep all the water services staff that councils currently have. Now that's not to say in the future that they couldn't reduce staff numbers, but it does, in the short term at least, prevent some of those efficiencies that might have been realised through rationalisation of duplicated roles. Now this, it's not a total surprise. The promised economies of scale ahead of big mergers don't always pan out in reality. That's not to say there aren't economies of scale, as there usually are, but they're not necessarily anywhere near as big as what was on the tin. What's more, they don't usually manifest themselves in reductions in bills for the end user, but generally a slower rate of increase. There are some really good papers online about Australia's experience of local government amalgamations in the past three decades, where there's been claims of uh, savings and the hundreds of millions of dollars being made pre-amalgamation, but then nothing of that scale could be readily identified post-amalgamation. There were savings that were identified, but they weren't of the size promised, although very difficult to um, quantify. Another of the big concerns that has come up around this complex ownership and governance structure is that communities will lose not just their ability to influence decisions in the same way that they can with local authorities, but also they'll lose that ability to hold the people who make those decisions accountable for them. Right now, if your local authority stuffs up, you get to vote us councillors out at the next election. And people are very happy to remind us of that fact, and justifiably so as well. being able to exercise that same accountability over these water entities, given they are so far removed from direct accountability to the communities they serve, really gets tricky and there's a debate about where that sits because local authorities would technically own them, but they're almost so big that it becomes an issue for parliament and central government to deal with instead. Now, in theory, the various regulators that will be in place are meant to give a measure of assurance that the big entities will be accountable. But I think we can all appreciate that people are naturally sceptical about claims like that, whether they come from central or local government. As is the way with these things, this is still very much a moving beast. Um, Moving feast, I should say. And just this week, central government announced a new working group involving various mayors to try and find a compromise solution on the governance and ownership model as it's been one of the major points of contention. And you can appreciate people's concerns with this. If you're a community in the far north, how do you ensure that Entity A, which needs to serve the 1.6 million people in Auckland City, makes sure it provides adequate investment for your needs? For people in Kapiti, where we've generally done an alright, though not perfect job, of investing in our water infrastructure. People are naturally wary about the massive bills for pipes down the road in Porirua, the Hutt Valley and Wellington, and what that would mean for their bills. This is where the issue of cross-subsidisation comes up. And a good example of this, with another infrastructure network, would be something like that Carpeti has already enjoyed a lot of cross-subsidisation from the rest of the country for our transport networks in the past decade. We've had electrification and double-tracking of the commuter rail network to Waikanae and that had new train carriages to go over. There's been the Mackay's to Tepekapeka Expressway um, and that's currently in the process of being extended to Ōtaki uh, and transmission gully too, whenever that finally opens. In the pipeline, there's the Ōtaki to north of Levin Expressway, and the case for extending double tracking and electrification of the rail network north of Waikanae is building up steam as well. The thing is though, our water networks don't connect north or south of the district. In fact, they don't even connect within our district beyond the main urban area from Waikanae to Raumati they They're very much standalone networks, and people know that when they pay their water weights, rates, which are in part determined by their water use through water meters, it goes towards their local water infrastructure. So it's understandable that people are reluctant about handing over that money to fund things elsewhere. And I'd quickly add here, for all those communities debating water meters at the moment, that water meters work, and they work well. People stop wasting waters, Water, you're able to better identify leaks, whether they're on council or private property, and it's resulted in water savings of anywhere between sort of 20 to 30 percent of um, prior demand before the meters were in place, depending on the year and I guess the weather and how much people are filling up pools and whatnot. It's also worth noting that thanks to the combination of water meters and our river recharge scheme for the Waikato River. Kapiti has managed to avoid the water restrictions that have plagued other parts of the Wellington region in recent years. So the debate for a lot of councils is fundamentally a choice between what's good for your community versus what's good for the country as a whole. And that puts local politicians like myself in a remarkably tricky position because we're elected to make decisions in the best interests of our communities, not necessarily the the rest of the country. That's what Parliament's for. There's other concerns floating about too. For example, Christchurch wants to return to their water being chlorine free, and they've been investing significantly post-earthquakes to achieve that goal. They're concerned if this reform goes ahead. They'll lose control of making that choice for themselves. Unfortunately, and I know many other councillors around the country have been seeing this or experiencing it directly too, there's also a lot of opposition to the involvement of mana whenua in the proposed entities, and much of this opposition, if not all of it, it's based on ignorance, it's based on outright racism, and there's even some conspiracy theories thrown in for good measure as well, and that's been, you know, very sad and, um, concerning to see. The other area of pushback is coming from councils asking why is this the only proposal on the table? They're asking why central government isn't looking at alternative funding arrangements that could allow local government to achieve the same outcomes in terms of water quality without handing over control and reducing local accountability. People have suggested a similar system to how um, Waka Kotahi New Zealand Transport Agency funds local roads and my personal preference would be for the sharing of GST revenues using a formula based on things like population, land area, geography, visitor numbers, deprivation and so on though not in the same manner as the federal government does in Australia with the state governments where a portion of GST revenues get given and taken away seemingly based on little more than uh, what pork barrel politics the local state government or the federal government wants to fund at the time. That's the sort of uh, carry on that we'd want to avoid in that sort of system so you'd want a very I guess watertight formula that doesn't allow for that and gives a, a dependable amount each year. This argument has definitely been picked up in light of Castalia's criticisms of the reform proposals. And with the review into the future of local government and Resource Management Act overhaul also in train, a number of councils are asking for more time. And whether have central government has a sequencing of these reforms in the right order and wanting them to go back and look at those alternatives and actually go out and have a public debate about what the alternatives might be. Another sore point has been the Three Waters Reform Advertising campaign from central government to encourage people to find out more about what's proposed. Suffice to say, the ad campaign has not been the greatest moment for either central government or those who created it, and it's created a lot of bad will in the sector in response. While that might all seem like a lot of detail, I promise you it's only scratching the surface and there there will definitely be things I've missed out. Um, There's a lot more you can find online, it'll be on the websites of local authorities, I know we've got a Three Waters page on the Kapiti Coast District Council website, Um, Local Government New Zealand has information on their website, and obviously the Department of Internal Affairs has it, and obviously uh, you can Google Three Waters and you'll be taken to a site which is based off the advertising campaign. Now, I, as I said, I, I haven't covered everything in this, and I did try and promise myself in the first episode that I'd make the second one shorter, and I've, I'm very much going to fail on that front, but that's the sort of nature of the three waters. You could do, you know, three or four episodes drilling down into all its details. So with all that covered, where to from here? Well, the first thing to point out is that despite some councils having already decided to opt out of the reforms, councils aren't actually required to make any decisions yet about whether they're in or out. All that central government has asked for so far is feedback to improve those final proposals by the 1st of October. Now, regrettably, there is a lot of misinformation out there about it, and um, sadly, a lot of this is actually coming from elected officials too. Now, what will happen after the 1st of October is that central government will take that feedback from local government and Cabinet will then decide on what the final proposal is for the reform. Now, and this is according to the current timeline on the table, councils would then get that final proposal and we'd go out and consult with our communities about whether they want to be in or out of the new entities. That consultation process may in turn trigger another referendum trigger a number of referendums around the country, and that would depend on whether councils chose to hold a referendum, or whether they're bound to under their standing orders. For example, here in Kapiti, to enter into an arrangement like this, our standing orders stipulate that not only do we need 75% of councillors to support a motion for us to do so, but that would then trigger a referendum, and then we'd need to make a final decision after that. Now. If you assumed that every council in the country said, yes, we're going to be in, government said, yes, we want to do this, the timeline would be that councils would start rolling into it from, well, get the ball rolling from next year, funding would start to come through to councils, and that the new entities would be up and running um, by the 2024-25 financial year, or at least by the close of it. Now, in terms of um, that consultation, this is where everything's up in the air a bit. Because in theory, central government could direct councils to ignore um, those sorts of requirements we have in our standing orders or just to not hold referendums. Um, They could say you're not allowed to hold a referendum. Central government could choose to bypass local government mechanisms entirely. They could conduct a nationwide consultation on their own. and given that this is uh, central government's proposal more so than it is local government's, there's been, I guess, a certain appeal to that idea that central government should be uh, running this, especially when you, um, I guess, look, if you've got you know 60 to 70 local authorities all running their own consultations at the same time, putting out their own information, that's also not particularly eff- efficient as well, and you can get a lot of different uh, levels of quality of information put out there as well. There's also the nuclear option and that's that central government just carries out the reform and amalgamates the three waters without any further consultation with either local government or our communities. Now, there has been an admission from the government that these new entities only really work if every council is part of them, and that's what they've based all the business case on. So if a number of sizeable councils do opt out, then that creates issues, and that's where you could see the government uh, turning around and saying actually no, you can't opt out, you're in it, you have to now work with us in good faith in that situation. Now to be perfectly honest, there are a heap of political dynamics at play right now, both within local government and um, at the parliamentary level too. For example, the Green Party is openly speculating that councils will be forced to join. And the National Party has come out in opposition to the reforms and just this weekend launched a uh, petition opposing them as well. In local government itself, it's no secret that there are a lot of Labour Party endorsed or aligned councillors, and they're being put in this horrendous position of being caught between, I guess, community reluctance and scepticism right through to out complete outrage at the reforms, and they've got to balance it up against the need to, I guess, support the party that helped enable them to get elected, so there's a huge tension that they're getting put under as well. And there's also an element of some really opportunistic politics about this too, and that's you're seeing um, local politicians around the country opposing them basically through a crude, yet very effective anti-Wellington lens. Um, and that is probably a sound electoral strategy for people leading into next year's local government elections. Um, taking a swing at Wellington, and I guess pushing back against that Wellington, what people would see as a Wellington knows best um, mentality, is going to prove popular. And if I'm really blunt, it does feel like central government is trying. And I'm going to paraphrase from The Godfather here to make local government an offer we can't refuse, accept three waters amalgamation, or face massive regulatory scrutiny, get no additional financial support, and lose the chance at any reforms elsewhere. Likewise, given this is such a politically contentious decision, It needs to be acknowledged that it will likely be councillors who face the political backlash at the ballot boxes next year, not members of parliament. So there's some genuine annoyance that central government is trying to make local government carry the can for this reform. In terms of my personal perspective, I accept that local government is going to struggle to finance the investment required in three waters over the next 30 years with our current financing arrangements, and that something has to change. Even where local authorities have done well to date, the scale of investment going forward will break a sector that's already struggling to keep pace with the demands on it. Where my concerns lie, are over the lack of direct accountabilities these new entities would have for the communities they serve, given how far removed they ultimately will be from them. For example, what does that mean for for smaller communities and their ability to get an entity that covers a 700km stretch of the country to make the investments they need versus the larger cities in that area who are obviously going to carry much more clout I also think that the order of reforms are around the wrong way, in that we should have reviewed the whole of local government first and established what exactly we want local government to deliver, then we could take on reforming the um, bits that we didn't want local government to deliver and figure out the best way to deliver those. Um, But in that respect we do have to play the hand we've been dealt with and try and make the most of the opportunity to make the reforms that the sector so badly needs. I'm also concerned that this is the only proposal on the table, and that central government doesn't yet seem willing to entertain any alternative proposals or funding arrangements. If it's the case that central government says it's our way or the highway, then they should be the ones making the decision given it will be a Hobson's choice for local government. Um, And if they do persist with this, it does put local politicians in a hugely untenable position. So on that cherry note, that's all for the second episode of Local Aotearoa. There might be a slight delay on the third episode, in part because I have a busy week coming up at Council with us considering our feedback to the Three Waters proposal amongst some potentially other topical local issues too. Uh, we've got our district growth strategy coming up so that's going to be uh, hugely important too and um, we're going to be uh, hopefully adopting our Um, uh, keeping of animals and poultry by law as well and that's I guess some of the uh, juxtaposition you get in local government you can have these really big chunky issues and then right next to them you can have something that seems slightly more mundane but actually does have a really um, important impact on people's lives as well so at this point I'm planning for the next episode to come out at some point on the week of the 4th October it might be a little later in the week Um, though you might get lucky and I might get to it sooner until then, I'm Gwyn Compton, this is Local Wauteira, rā. Authorized by Gwyn Compton, 60 Manley Street, Parapara All opinions in, expressed in this podcast are my personal views and not necessarily those of the Kapiti Coast District Council.